Welcome <laughs> to what the if slow version. <laughs> okay, this is a, yet another time dilation episode, mm -hmm. uh, which I'll, well, you know, you never know when this is going to happen. Any relativistic topics totally throws off our rhythm. That's, that's right. A uh, large mass is apparently flying by us for some strange reason and dilating our time. Welcome to What the If. Anything can happen each week. Matt, what is this? Uh, how would you explain this project that people have suddenly... Uh, this is the place where we uh, change something about reality and then we run with the consequences. Um, and hopefully we learn something along the way, but sometimes we accidentally destroy the universe too. It happens. It happens. It but happens. that's all thought of the, that's all it's for science. So it is for science. And, yeah. And therefore, as and long we, as we can still get grant applications for it, we're, uh, we're good to go. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And uh, but there are safety protocols. And speaking of safety protocols, our safety officer is here, Gabby Panicia from Rockefeller University. And uh, there are no physics safety protocols, but maybe biological. Would you agree, Gabby? And uh, Oh, yeah. I, you know, I'm fully gowned up, safety glasses on every time this uh, this podcast comes on. Might not protect me from uh, certain ifs, uh, but hopefully some of the more mundane ifs are still uh, okay. biosafe contained. Mm -hmm. That's a good plan. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Gabby's a virologist at Rockefeller University at New York, in New York City. Matt, historian of science at New York University. New York, yes, New York University, also in New York City. Uh, I am a documentary filmmaker, Philip Shane, also in New York City, but in Brooklyn, so some people call it its own thing. Um, we have such a special guest today. We're just going to get right to it. Uh, Matt, would you please do the honors of introducing our honored guest? I'd be delighted to. Our, our guest today is uh, one of the most distinguished uh, astronomers working today. Um, he, this is Avi Loeb, um, formerly my professor, actually, way back at Harvard, um, nowadays in the astronomy department and the Black Hole Institute, um, and uh, uh, evangelist for new ways of thinking about science these days. Avi, how are you? I'm doing great, actually. The way I would introduce myself is as a farm boy. You know, I, I didn't change much uh, since the time I grew up on a farm, and uh, I see science as a privilege uh, of maintaining your childhood curiosity. Unfortunately, many of my colleagues in academia lost that curiosity and are more interested in themselves. Oh, here comes out guns, guns slinging. <laughs> Farm boy. Savage. Great. That's how you get things done. Before, before we go further, though, Avi, I'd like to know what, what was what was the least un, the, the least pleasant uh, job on the farm that led you to not continue it, a farm life? Oh, actually, everything was very pleasant. It's just that I was curious about uh, philosophical questions, the most fundamental questions we have. And uh, then I realized that we can't really answer them. And roughly at the same time, uh, I was drafted to the military in Israel and uh, I preferred to do intellectual work. So I, I went to physics. I was good at physics. And one thing led to another. I ended up as a tenured faculty, the head of the astronomy department at Harvard for nine years. And even though it was an arranged marriage, uh, I, I, found out, uh, I found out that I'm actually married to my true love at the end, because uh, there are some deep philosophical questions in uh, astrophysics about the universe that we can address using the scientific method. Um, unfortunately, you see, even though I was interested at a young age in philosophy, I realized that the answers uh, are better 
found through telescopes. That's what Galileo taught us, uh, Galileo Galilei, and the philosophers in his day refused to look through his telescope. They said they know that the sun moves around the earth. Look at the sky. The sun moves in the sky, right? So it's obvious the, sky, the, the sun moves around the earth, and it's much more flattering to our ego to believe that we are at the center of things. And they put him in house arrest. Today, they would have canceled him on social media. And uh, uh, so my point is, you know, four centuries have passed since the days of Galileo. And I would think that everyone uh, learned the lesson, right? But then a few months ago, I see a, a paper published in Nature Astronomy magazine by a philosopher arguing that this uh, weird object, the first object that came into the solar system and was discovered near Earth uh, from outside the solar system named the uh, Oumuamua, uh, is most likely natural based on philosophical reasoning. And I thought to myself, haven't we learned something over four centuries? <laughs> very interesting. Very interesting. So our, our, I'm going to start our thought experiment. So each week, uh, for those of you who are new, we, we run a thought experiment. And so a thought experiment, um, th our thought experiment this week is going to be based on, uh, we're just going to begin with, and we never know, we never know where it's going to go. That's the important thing right now, even if we're, we're playing this experiment live, although obviously certainly done a lot of thought in this area. So, um, and you mentioned Galileo. And so uh, we are going to do a thought experiment where we kind of role play or imagine out uh, your Galileo project. And so before I, well, I'm going to announce the what the if, and we will begin the game then. So, but if, so everyone get your places, put on your safety equipment. Um, but uh, Avi, tell us what, just give you know, a quick thing about what is the Galileo Project? What is this thought experiment we're going to run today? Yeah, it basically follows uh, the footsteps of, of Galileo. And he was, if he was alive today, I would have invited him to join the project. Uh, in uh, July, uh, a few multi-billionaires came to the porch of my home and uh, asked me questions about my book, uh, Extraterrestrial, and ended up um, providing uh, roughly $2 million to my research funds. And that's unheard of in academia. I didn't engage in any fundraising. At that point, I decided to establish a project which is basically looking uh, for... Uh, any equipment that was sent by extraterrestrial civilizations that may uh, fly by close to Earth, okay? And um, it's sort of like regarding the solar system as a mailbox, and you're checking whether we, you have any packages in it. Now, most of the astronomers, most of the scientists would say, oh, we have nothing in our mailbox, forget about it, business as usual. But that's a circular argument. If you don't check your mailbox, obviously, you will not know that you have mail. And by the way, it could be tragic. Just think about love letters that you may find in an attic that pass their time. You know, So suppose we have a package that ha carries the message for our own salvation in the distant future. You know, we are ruining the climate. We are doing all kinds of damage locally. And uh, suppose there is some package that gives us the recipe for our own salvation. And we just don't open it because all the scientists are saying, ah, oh, there is nothing in our mailbox, forget about it. So the Galileo project is really aimed to look for those packages uh, and in two forms. One are objects like Oumuamua, this uh, object discovered in 2017, didn't look like a comet or an asteroid uh, that uh, flew within a distance of like a fifth of uh, the Earth-Sun separation from Earth. And then uh, there are also objects that are 
categorized as um, unidentified aerial phenomena. They were included in the report of the intelligence agencies to the Congress on the 25th of uh, June this year. And uh, those are the second component of the Galileo project. And we are planning to build the telescope systems that will get megapixel images of these UAP. Uh, basically, you know, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. I will need to write the book <laughs> if we had a photograph of Oumuamua. Oh my God, that would be so amazing. All right, so here, here we are. What? Oh, go ahead, Matt. Where are you? Uh, I was just going to uh, uh, a quick yeah, technical question. How do you decide yeah. which pictures of the UAPs are worth looking at? Are interesting. Well, it's, it's like a fishing expedition. So basically, the hooks that we send are those telescopes looking at the sky, and then there would be a software that we are developing that will identify objects. So if if you, if you find a bird, I'm not a zoologist. I don't care much about birds. I would be glad to transfer a high-resolution image of a bird to a colleague that is uh, specializing in zoology. For me, it's boring. Uh, if we do find an object uh, and we read off the label made in China, made in Russia, I know that there are some residents of Washington, D.C. that would be extremely excited about it, but I don't care. It's as boring as a bird, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, the same is true for a drone, any human-made equipment, a drone, a, an airplane. But if we see something different that is not in these categories, we will look very carefully at it. And that includes taking a high-resolution image with a big telescope and also tracking its motion and seeing whether it could, it could be explained by human-made technologies. All right. So here we're going to see, now we're going to, we're all fired up and here we go. What the if? What the if? After feeling for centuries like all our, our, our mailbox was empty. It turns out we've just been sending it all to spam. <laughs> Professor Avi Loeb has told us Dude, check your spam box. You may have an important message there. There may be one out of a lot of genuine spam. Um, there may be something valuable. So these, uh, for an I'll leave for another time. I, I do love the image that multi-billionaires just showed up on your porch. That's... <laughs> Did they have an appointment or did, did they just, were yeah, they just like... No. They had an appointment. They were not the only ones. There was a YouTuber mm -hmm. that came all the way from Seattle on a red eye and just for a half an hour, half an hour conversation. And, and she paid me uh, money for that. And, and some, someone said, uh, uh, you should check uh, your bird feeder. Perhaps they, she left the recording device there, but not <laughs> completely innocent. And uh, it's on YouTube and it got actually... You know, uh, that was a record for her. It got, I think, 200,000 views within uh, a month or so. Ah. Okay. Well, Ooh. then, then as we say, Avi, mazel tov to her. And <laughs> uh, uh, mazel tov, I think, as you would say. And uh, um, you are a little bit suspicious of birds. So we'll, leave, we'll also leave that for another time, clearly. I think <clears throat> we're going to leave it to Gabby if a bird shows up and it says made in Russia. Yeah, yeah that, that would be that slightly more my territory, yes. I would probably try to infect it with West Nile, yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> I did get emails from uh, in the last week uh, from uh, China, Russia, and Ukraine, and I, I ignored all of them. Yeah, 
I get those all the time too. In fact, I literally have just as we were speaking, a message showed up in our in our what the if mailbox, and it's all it's in Russian. It's in Cyrillic anyway. I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. So, um, glad to know you guys are listening. Thank you very much. Um, but we may have aliens listening as well. So, um, or at least they have recording devices they've left. Now, getting back to back to brass tacks here. So, um, what the if? So, what the if? Multi billionaires showed up on your porch and said. Hey, we want you to study this thing. And so the first thing, uh, it sounds like where you are right now, like in a way, I sort of imagine these thought experiments being a little bit like a flow chart in a way. It's sort of like, well, here's where we are now. And then if this happens, then. So um, where where are you right now? It sounds like, I, I think what I'm hearing you, you talk about in the media is that you're kind of uh, brainstorming the equipment to purchase or the plant? Where is the project at now? So I should say I'm very fortunate to have my first sabbatical in 19 years. So I have plenty of time. I'm writing also my next book. I'm starting to write that. And uh, But uh, at any event, with respect to the Galileo project, we have about 70 people involved and uh, about 25 scientists, exceptional scientists, mostly astronomers. And we are currently discussing which instruments to buy. Uh, in fact, I had some uh, phone conversations yesterday about that. And uh, once we converge on what to buy, then we will start assembling it and uh, testing it, you know, and that will take months and making sure that the equipment works to what the, the specifications and, and also equipping it with the uh, algorithms, computer uh, software that will allow it, allow the telescopes, for example, to track objects. And uh, as I said, the, the, that's the component associated with UAP. Then we have a whole separate component that has to do with interstellar objects farther away oh oh i didn't realize you're doing both both near and far um that's yeah. very cool yeah by the way at harvard at yeah. harvard university it, it was not the trivial you know the the higher administration challenged me and said can you can you demonstrate or, or argue why this is part of your day job right because otherwise they wouldn't allow me to dedicate a large fraction of my time to that and so i thought about it and i said look for several decades I've been practicing astronomy, and all I've been doing is interpreting data collected by telescopes. That was my job. That's my day job. And this is no different because we are collecting data with telescopes, and I will interpret that data. Now, there is no lower limit on the distance of an object uh, for it to be part of astronomy. You know, there are some astronomers studying the sun. Others study meteors or mm-hmm. asteroids or uh, comets, and all of these are part of astronomy. So uh, they listened to my argument and they agreed, and it's part of my day job. Wow, that's really that's interesting. What's, well, I'm just curious in that argument. So, by the way, what the if what the if uh, multi billionaires show up on your porch and say research this topic of uh, um, possible objects in Earth's atmosphere and or in the solar system or beyond. Um, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to get pushback from your boss. And mm-hmm. I, was there a particular moment where you saw the or saw them kind of agree? Like, was there a particular uh, a point you made that was most effective to them or was it just sort of- You mean to the, to the administrators at Harvard? To Harvard, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it was, no, I mean, it, it was not, I had to convince them. It took uh, several weeks and, uh, uh, you know, and 
at the end, there was also a public announcement of the project and they were trying to postpone that and say that perhaps uh, we should wait a little and see how things go. But that's not the way I operate. You know, for me, it's uh, pretty much clear from the beginning what needs to be done. And by the way, I was department chair for nine years and I was told when I start, started that it will take 85% of my time. And it actually took 15% of my time. And I asked <laughs> why? Uh, and I would say that, you know, it's just like driving in the highways, in the highway. And if you don't take the wrong exit, then you don't waste a lot of time. So it's all about strategy. You need to know in advance what's the right exit to take. And if, if you don't make mistakes, you know, if you do make mistakes, you can spend a lot of time just fighting your way back to the highway. Uh, and so, you know, that was the key. That's the key for efficiency, making the right strategic decisions. And for that, you need to see the big picture. That's why philosophers are important. Okay. All right. So let's say one morning you wake up um, and you've got a Gmail notification. Um, your The systems that you've so carefully set up have found a picture that is definitely not a bird, definitely not a drone, matches all of your filtering criteria. What do you do next? What happens? Okay. Then we put a lot of telescopes on, on that uh, environment. Uh, either seeing the same object or similar objects. And uh, we want to get as much data as possible. So I want to get a high resolution image, uh, basically a megapixel image. So just to give you an example, a one meter telescope, which by the way, you can buy on the web. Uh, there is a website online where you can click add to the bag on a <laughs> one meter telescope mm -hmm. and it says half a million dollars. Huh. So there are people willing to pay half a million dollars by adding it to their bag, you know, like any other item you buy on Amazon. So anyway, I'm adding so it to my uh, gift list. So right now. <laughs> Amazon wish list for Christmas. <laughs> wish list, wish list. Yeah. But the one meter telescope can give you a megapixel image, a, a, an image with a million pixels, million resolution elements of a, a human size object at a distance of a mile. Okay, that's just optics. Mm -hmm. So it means that you can resolve the head of a pin, uh, meaning that you can read off the label on, on an object. You can see the bolts, the screws, everything. So that's really something I want to have. And, and of course, you can also monitor how the object is moving and it could be quite unusual, you know, like moving in ways that we cannot reproduce with all of our propulsion systems, uh, simply because it was produced by some technology that is far more advanced. So the minute we see that, what I really want to do is press some buttons on this thing, you know, but I will not do that because uh, I will not engage as of yet. You know, mm. it, just like a caveman finding a cell phone and the caveman, the first thing the caveman thinks is the cell phone is just a rock of a type that was never seen before, you know, like a shiny rock. And mm -hmm. that's what my colleagues said about Oumuamua, that it's a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, a, a cloud of dust particles, things that we've never seen before. And that, they said, must be the case so that the object would be natural. And that's what the caveman would say about a cell phone. You know, it's natural. It's just of a type mm -hmm. that we've never seen before. Okay. But then he would press a button and record his voice, press another button, record his image, and realize that it's not a rock. It's something else. So I want, I really want to press some buttons, if possible, to, to put my hands around this thing. But I, I would like to be careful about it because, you know, we all know about 
the story of Troy, right? When there was this beautiful horse, they let the horse <laughs> in, uh, they were very happy about the way it looks and they thought it's very friendly and it ended up serving a different purpose. So we want to be careful we, before we engage, we want to, you know, passively collect all the information we can. So it's sort of like going on a blind date, right? So you would m never marry a person on just, you know, the first few seconds mm. after you see the, the person on a blind date. You want to collect some information. I regard that as a blind date, right? It's a, you are introduced to an object that you've never met before. It's not a human being. It's a, some probably piece of technology, right? It's probably there would be no... Uh, living creature in it, or it's just a technology, mm -hmm. uh, and you want to figure it out. So it's just like sitting, you know, in on a blind date, trying to have a conversation. So first thing, you just listen, you just look, you just see what that thing is doing. You know, listen to their stories. Yeah, um, that's right. So you can't, as you say, you know, if we were <laughs> cave people finding um, the phone, at least we can poke it, right? We can push the buttons. Presumably you can't push any buttons on the UAP you've just taken a picture of, right? It's, you know, a uh, hundred thousand miles away or something like that. Well, unless unless you land on it or, or you force it down kind of. Oh, that would be nice too. Okay, well, actually, yeah. Or you collide with it. You collide with it. I should say that, that the UAP that were reported by pilots, one of them passed very close to an airplane. And I would love it if it were to collide with the airplane because then you could stop it, you know? Yeah, I, that's a whole nother, I, I really don't understand. You know, some of these, those military UAP are flying in skies which aren't necessarily even in restricted airspace. So I don't know why. If I lived out by Catalina or if I had a plane, I'd, I'd just be up there hovering, looking. They're only flying 100, 100 knots sometimes, which is slow. So, but but just getting back to Matt, so I think we, we need to clarify here in this particular thought experiment, what is the distance of the object because there's a little bit of uh, right. so rubberiness I, I, about are, are we close are we far so yeah yeah the, typically it would be uh several miles kind of distance because that's i mean you can see out to a, a few miles depending on visibility typically so that's where you will find things you know like a few miles away okay so that's quite close right. yeah i mean we're talking about uap now in the context of umuamua like objects it's a fraction of the earth sun separation Okay. Yeah. So if it's in, in the uh, atmosphere, so we're talking, it's almost sort of two regimes here. We're talking about surging, right? It seems like within, within really close and then, you know, space distances. So for the really close stuff, when you said you put a lot of telescopes on it, I guess you mean that would be a lot of telescopes that are at the exact same base are you talking about or would there yeah, be so um you need at least a few of them maybe four uh, so that or three uh so that you can get a parallax which means that basically you're observing the object from different directions and you can tell the three-dimensional motion of it in the sky if you just observe it with one telescope you only see the projection the way it moves uh, in two dimensions but what you want is the third dimension and you can get it uh, by having another telescope and if you have more of them uh, you get better precision at pinning down the way it moves in three dimensions. And that's one thing. But then you want also a big enough aperture, a telescope that is big enough that can image it. Because, you know, a lot of people say, okay, what about, you know, millions of people have cell phones and they take images of the sky. So how come we haven't seen any? My point is a million cell phones, you know, are not worth one big telescope because they have apertures that are just a few millimeters in size and the, the images will always be fuzzy. And irrespective of how many cell phones you use, you can use a million, 
the image will always be fuzzy. The, if you take one telescope of, let's say, a meter size or a fraction of a meter, it could get you a, a, a crisp image of such an object. So this is like you, you go to take a photo of the moon with your cell phone and it just looks like kind of like a, a little white dot, but you know, then you see the someone who has a nice lens for it, good equipment, and then the photo is all of a sudden so much crisper because it's exactly. you know, actually the right equipment. Exactly. And I should say that Oumuamua, for example, was roughly the size of a football field at a distance uh, that is a fraction of the distance to the sun. And, and all the telescopes on Earth, even the biggest ones, uh, you know, like 10 meter in size uh, in Hawaii, and they could not resolve it. They just saw it as a single point of, of light. But they could tell that the amount of light that it reflects as it tumbles varies. Uh, and they could tr uh, trace the trajectory that it went through. And uh, But what we really want is to get close enough and have a big enough telescope so that we can get an image. You know, like uh, we can tell what this object is. Yeah. You know, I, I know that a lot of our listeners are like me, I'm sure. Uh, we love watching rocket launches. And so uh, there have been a lot on the, a lot of live streaming of rocket launches lately, especially by SpaceX, which is fantastic. Also Blue Origin, et cetera. And we get to, you know, the, the, uh, the quality, I'm always stunned by the tracking cameras, uh, the quality of the tracking cameras. So we can watch and, you know, for those who go all the way back to the space shuttle. So we have cameras of some kind, right? That whatever is doing that job are following a high performance craft you know, through the atmosphere and the thing manages to stay relatively within the uh, frame of the lens. And um, it's a little bit blurry, you know, certainly the higher and higher it gets, but uh, and a lot of this atmospheric distortion, I feel like not, so, you know, plus the resolution of the lens. How might these telescopes compare to those cameras that so, are being used? So basically your, your resolution, the, the pixel uh, that you can resolve uh, depends on the size of the aperture. Just it, it gets smaller and smaller inversely with the size of the aperture. So the bigger your telescope, the better your resolution is, except there is some blurring by turbulence in the atmosphere that you have. Mm -hmm. So uh, beyond the size uh, of um, a few inches, or I should say maybe five inches, uh, atmospheric turbulence um, starts playing a role. Uh, if, if your aperture is bigger than that, you are not gaining much unless you correct for or you do some lucky imaging where you look for a long time and, and during some of the time, the blurring is not as bad as during other times. Uh, I should say just a, a footnote about uh, Bezos and Branson. You know, they, they use their wealth uh, to lift their body by 1% of the Earth radius. That's all. And uh, that's, not, that's not very impressive, I should say. You, you know, showing off in space is an oxymoron because the size of the universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the radius of the Earth. And, you know, the only way you can start to brag is if you send uh, a spacecraft, you know, across the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy or something like that. And, you know, we can do that. It may take millions of years. But um, the point is, until then, we should not brag. I mean, uh, it really makes very little sense for, you know, uh, us to claim that we went into space if we just moved you know, a little bit, like 1% of the Earth radius, you know, that's, mm -hmm. just think about it from a distance. It's not very impressive. And moreover, we embarrassed ourselves many times before, you know, we, we sent this golden record that had the, some pieces of our culture, you know, but who cares? Like why that, that is actually embarrassing, you know, the, the music of the Beatles or whatever was there. Uh, but 
Uh, I would say we, we embarrassed ourselves even, even more when we sent the ashes of Clyde Tambow uh, on the New Horizons uh, mission. You know, that, that's the mission that went to Pluto mm -hmm. and Clyde yeah. Tambow uh, discovered Pluto and uh, NASA decided to put uh, some of his ashes on the spacecraft uh, in, uh, in recognition of his uh, contribution. And, but that's actually an insult because what are ashes? Ashes are burnt up DNA. You take the DNA of a person, the genetic code, and you burn it up. And then you put that on the spacecraft as, <laughs> as if to celebrate the person. You know, when, you know, these ashes are no different than the ashes of a cigarette. You know, they're, they're just, they contain no information whatsoever. And so we sent that on a spacecraft in recognition of the person. I mean, that's an insult. And it would have made much more sense to put the genetic code of, of like Tambao in electronic form or to have a stem cell, a frozen stem cell. So I actually spoke with the, the uh, principal investigator of the New Horizons uh, 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 mission, and he, he's on the Galileo project. You know, he is a, a member uh, of- Alan Stern, is it? Yeah, Alan Stern. And I said, uh, you know, why didn't you do that? And, and he said it would have been extremely uh, complicated bureaucratically within NASA to put any uh, living cell, anything living, you know, mm -hmm. any biological component. Uh, but in my mind, they could have just put the genetic information in electronic form. So mm -hmm. just to show you that we embarrass ourselves time and time again in space. We are jumping 1% of the Earth radius. We are very proud of ourselves. We are sending these things far out of the solar. I mean, I, I really hope nobody finds those things. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I did calculate, you know, I, I shop at Whole Foods, uh, which is owned by Jeff Bezos. And I was curious when I buy uh, a head of lettuce, how, how far that gets him. And I calculated it's two inches uh, using the actual cost of his mission and how far All he right. got. So one head of lettuce buys Jeff Bezos two, two inches. Of more than I would have expected. Um, all right. So we've got, all right. So we've got, um, we retarget all of the cameras um, onto our anomaly. And what do we see that keeps us interested? What's, ah, what well, new thing do we get? Suppose we, I, I can imagine, suppose you see some buttons there uh, and you see some, uh, uh, lights flickering. All right. So we've seen we've seen that, that there are lights flickering on the outside of the craft. Yes. Already, that just seems unusual. Um, that that's uh, there are buttons on the outside. Of the, do our fighter? I don't think our fighter planes have buttons on the outside that you could hit. So that well, would be. They might be sensors. I don't know what they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. Just, that's uh, right. That's right. We don't yeah. know what they are. Well, we don't know. But but the point is, here is my. My point that uh, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably an AI system. You know, it's an it's a system equipped with artificial intelligence. It's mm -hmm. it, it outsmarts us, and we cannot figure it out, especially not from a distance. Now, even if we land on it, it will take a while for us to figure it out. So maybe we will need to use our own AI systems to figure their AI systems. It's sort of like relying on our kids to figure out content on the internet because they're much more computer savvy. You know? I, I always feel like my, anytime I hear AI though, I always feel like I have to like jump on that a little bit because at least so much of our current AI is sort of biased by how it's trained. Right. And I always think of the movie Arrival, uh, if any of you guys have seen that. It's a great mm -hmm. talk about language and how the way that you teach the, the context of things can sometimes be misinterpreted. How the aliens. I love this movie. It's my favorite. 
Oh, yeah. And I, I love that it sort of essentially gets to a point in which the aliens use the term weapon, but it's clear that they don't really know what that means, that mm. a weapon can be a tool. So they might have just given us a tool. And so, you know, how do we train an AI to try to not be biased by our human things? How do we, you know, take everything that we learn with a grain of salt and check and recheck? Well, that's, that's a great, and uh, that's an excellent question. And that's, you know, the way I think of it is that AI systems are just like our technological kids. You know, we, we can educate them at a young age and let them interact with the world, just like kids, you know. And uh, by the way, uh, uh, the film Arrival, uh, uh, the producer of that film, uh, contacted me about uh, five months ago and said that he loved my book, Extraterrestrial. And I told him I admired your film long before you knew about my book. So uh, <laughs> That's cool. But uh, uh, I agree with you that uh, it's a fascinating question. I mean, first of all, how to communicate with something that is different than us. And, and second is how to interpret, you know, wh what the intent is. That, that is the most difficult. And by the way, mm -hmm. I do think people in the humanities, like philosophers, or psychologists, or, you know, they could have a, a big contribution to the way we approach it. But it's, it's you know, it's just like code breaking during like uh, the Enigma code, you know, that uh, uh, Turing uh, tried to break. Uh, uh, it, it, it was, the, the language was not clear and he had to work it out. And, and so much the same skills are needed when you get signals that you cannot really understand. All right. So, so at what point do you have a press conference to announce you've discovered an alien piece of technology? Okay. So here we go through the procedure. So first thing, as a scientist, I'm talking just as a scientist, you know, mm -hmm. I would like to be sure that I'm not being fooled by some, uh, you know, um, optical illusions by some uh, unreliable, uh, you know, uh, infer inference from my telescope. So I want to see it, for example, in the optical band, in the infrared, in radar systems. I want to be sure this is an object. It's really behaving in a very strange way. And I have an image of it that looks like nothing we produce, humans produce, mm -hmm. unrelated to uh, any specific nation. So instead of being a matter of national security, as these objects are often thought about, it's a matter of international uh, security, or if you want. Uh, so everyone has to worry about it or think about it. I don't know if worry about it. Maybe, you know, they, they could have caused a lot of damage if, if, if they are around uh, long ago, so, and they haven't done that. So I wouldn't worry about any risk because it could have been already inflicted a long time ago. So the fact that we are here talking freely and nothing really bad happened implies that, uh, you know, if there is something out there, it's it's not trying to hurt us because it could have done it long ago. Um, so uh, so I would just examine it now uh, passively, collect as much information. As I said, you know, we don't know much, so we shouldn't have a prejudice. And, and I would employ the smartest people on, on earth. And I don't care what their profession is, you know. Uh, even if they are politicians, although it's very unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> but this is interesting because, like, uh, levity aside, like this, if this is an actual possibility, now it could be the slimmest of slim possibilities, but it is a possibility you capture something. And I'm going to assume that, you know, before you did a press conference, as you said, it would be captured possibly not just on a still frame or something, but video. You, you tracked it, the motions, et cetera, and it clearly does all this. Yeah. And at this point in the thought experiment, we reach another sort of divide in our flowchart. One is it's uh, it's an object acting 
according to our laws of physics, regardless of, you know, oh, if it does evasive maneuvers, but it's still doing it within normal physics, um, which is not what the reports are, right? Let's just to say, not, not saying those are evidence because it's just eyewitness, but there's that. And then the other is that it's doing something that we really, that breaks the laws of physics. Oh, yeah. So these are two uh, two possibilities indeed. And um, what the, the procedure that I would like to follow as a scientist is, as I said, at first verify if I'm sure that everything is indeed uh, unusual. Uh, then uh, I, I would write a paper, you know, I wouldn't sleep that night. And basically you can write a paper within a day. Uh, I can do that. I do that. Yeah. Not many people do, I should say. <laughs> That's just you. Uh, but uh, yeah, we will go through it with the uh, members of the collaboration just to make sure everyone agrees to what is being said in terms of the data that was taken. And of course, the data will be made uh, available. Uh, and then this scientific paper with the data will be submitted. Now, the, the only uh, question is whether to wait for referees because uh, that takes months and the referees would be very obnoxious. I've, I've seen some, you know, like, <laughs> I can give you an example. There was uh, a paper claiming that Oumuamua was a nitrogen iceberg, okay? A, a chunk of frozen nitrogen chipped off a surface of a planet like Pluto. And mm -hmm. uh, we, with my student, realized that you just don't have enough nitrogen in the Milky Way galaxy to make enough chips such that one of them would be Oumuamua. And so we wrote a paper about it. And then it went to the editor of a journal and the editor uh, who uh, wants to believe that Oumuamua is natural, sent the paper to the person who proposed the model of a nitrogen iceberg. And I ask you, what could be more of a conflict of interest than that? You know, like, would you, would you expect that person to admit that they, uh, they have an issue? No, so that person, of course, basically said, no, the, I, I recommend against publication of this uh, criticism of the model. And uh, the editor, surprisingly, didn't even let us respond to, to, that, to that response by, by, by uh, you know, that person. And, and, and so the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, that's, we had to waste months waiting for that re uh, referee report, and then we were not allowed to respond to it. And uh, I just don't want to be trapped in such a circle where people that have an agenda basically prevent the truth from coming out, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, but the example I gave you was from over the past month. It's not an ancient history. We are talking about the culture in academia right now, which is not healthy, not open-minded. Mm -hmm. And it's not only scientists, but um, it goes beyond that. Um, you know, um, uh, the, there was... Um, uh, for example, um, a philosopher that gave a, 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 a talk at the Black Hole Initiative uh, first uh, annual conference, basically saying, uh, if physicists agree on something for a decade, then it must be true. And I raised my hand when he was done and said, how can you say something like that? It's not up to a community of physicists to agree among themselves. You know that you have a lot of... Uh, uh, cults, you know, in, in, in human culture that agree, where people agree with each other and then, um, and then it turns out to be a, a complete hoax, you know, nothing. It's about evidence. Evidence is the way of us checking whether our ideas conform with reality. That's, that's the idea of science. And I realized that the philosopher spoke for too long with people in theoretical physics that uh, for several decades had no contact with experimental data and basically... <laughs> Uh, established a big enough community such that they give each other awards and honors and ridicule any 
criticism of their uh, endeavor. And, uh, you know, to me, that's not physics because, you know, uh, for example, um, uh, Bernie Madoff, you know, he had a beautiful idea. He said, give me your money, I'll make more of it, irrespective of what the stock market does. And the idea was so beautiful that people gave him their money. What could be better testimony to their agreement with the, the fact that the idea is beautiful? And then he thought the idea is beautiful because there are all these people giving him their money. He was happy about that. So everyone thought, everyone thought the idea is beautiful. Nobody doubted it. And then they asked for their money back and he could not deliver. So it meant that the idea, even though the idea is beautiful, it didn't conform with reality. Therefore, he was put in jail. Okay. And how do you find whether something is a Ponzi scheme or not? only by having an experiment, an independent test of whether the idea matches reality. That's what physics mm -hmm. is about. It's not a nuance. I'm not talking about a nuance where you can say, okay, if for a decade we all thought about the idea and decided that it's beautiful, it must be right. That's not the right attitude. The right approach is to say, if the idea is verified by evidence, by experimental data, then it is right because it needs to, you know, the confirmation needs to come from something completely independent of the people that advocate for it, completely independent, unrelated to them. And, uh, and that philosophers that, you know, that gave that talk didn't, didn't really get it. And that seems mm -hmm. to be the culture of a lot of people right now are uh, making that, that, that. And I, I find it unhealthy for the scientific endeavor. And at the same time, when there isn't uh, some evidence for something unusual, like Oumuamua, people ridicule it and just say business as usual, and let's move on, it's natural. You, you know, it's a nitrogen iceberg, something we've never seen before, but it's natural, forget about it. And uh, both, both of these uh, trends are unhealthy as far as uh, science is concerned. I'm so just super... about the... Go ahead, uh, Gabby. Oh no, yeah. I was just super curious about something because you know, every field of science operates a little differently. There's a little like different culture in it. And biologists were kind of always arguing with each other inherently because our data can be ambiguous and context dependent. Um, so I guess I'm just like kind of curious of like, I, I don't know what like the state of like physicists arguing with each other over data is like, or, you know, biologists publish now a lot of stuff that we publish like preprints now, like before we send it off to a publisher, there are things like bioarchive. Like, I'm just mm -hmm. kind of curious, like, are these debates happening among physicists or is yeah. it a little bit more hierarchical or are they all still yelling at each other? The, the debates, uh, uh, you know, there are papers on the archive and uh, but the issue is really about the, the, the background culture where, you know, people are encouraged to demonstrate that they are smart. It's not, you know, the main uh, 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 motivation is not so much describing nature, okay? It's not uh, trying to explain observed facts or trying to test your ideas against. Let, let me give you another example. There was a, a string theorist that gave a talk at the Black Hole Initiative um, on... Uh, a connection between string theory and the early universe. Okay, he just gave a, a talk about it and worked, wrote many papers on this subject. So I said, wonderful. So now if we find something about the early universe, would that, could we in principle rule out string theory <laughs> given the connection that you just established? And he said, no, if it turns out that uh, the early universe was different, then it means that the connection that I established is incorrect. But string theory must always be right. Yeah. Now, I ask you, how can that be part of a scientific uh, conversation? Because uh, it's as if you're saying, 
oh, I'm, I'm, I'm finding something, but that something uh, that I'm finding is relevant only if it agrees with the data. Mm-hmm. And then if it doesn't agree with the data, then, you know, the, the theory that I'm describing is still correct. It's just that my description of it was not really uh, the, the problem. Like this is, I would argue this is uh, even worse than humanities. <laughs> Um, in a sense of not being tangible, you know, not being, not putting skin in the game. Uh, and, and physics is all about putting skin in the game. You know, it's a learning experience. We're supposed to allow ourselves to be wrong. And, um, uh, you know, if you look at Einstein in the last decade of his career, when he was the most celebrated scientist of the 20th century, in the last decade of his career, made three uh, mistakes that are quite major. He argued that black holes do not exist, gravitational waves do not exist, and quantum mechanics doesn't have uh, spooky action at a distance. And all three of them turned out to be wrong. And uh, what does it show you? It shows that when you work at the frontiers, you, you could be wrong. And that, that should be regarded as part of, the, uh, of, of your day job to, to try and figure out what nature is about. And you, could, you can't forecast that in advance. Sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong, but, but we should all allow ourselves to be wrong. And if we don't allow ourselves to be wrong by playing in a sandbox that allows us only to demonstrate how smart we are without having any relevant predictions to reality. That's a betrayal of the tradition of physics, in my opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. And you mentioned that <clears throat> at least two or two of the three, quote, mistakes you mentioned about Einstein, two of them came out of his own theory, uh, natural evolution yeah. in his own theory, right? Gravitational <laughs> waves and uh, black holes. I should say, uh, okay. with respect to both of them, he, he wrote some early notes uh, in uh, just after he came up with his general theory of relativity in November uh, 20, um, 1915. And shortly afterwards, he derived gravitational waves and, and also uh, he uh, communicated the Schwarzschild solution for a black hole. Um, and um, so uh, he knew about these things, but then he, while being at Princeton, you know, he tried to work them out uh, more rigorously kind of, and uh, ha- had the wrong view on them. You know, he thought that the black hole, even though it's a mathematical curiosity, you know, it, it cannot really form in nature because when a star tries to collapse, it, you know, collapses, it, it, it has some rotation that will prevent it from, uh, from making a black hole. And I think one reason he thought about it is because he was at the Institute for Advanced Study and, the, and Oppenheimer, who was the director there, um, you know, they were uh, not in good relations with each other. Oppenheimer would have um, said uh, some negative things about Einstein. And uh, Einstein wanted to show that Oppenheimer's solution, the Oppenheimer-Snyder solution for a collapse to a black hole, perhaps is not realistic because it's uh, spherically symmetric. It doesn't have any rotation. And, uh, mm-hmm. my, my guess is, I, I don't have any uh, evidence for that, but my guess is it, it was part of that rivalry. But, but he was on the wrong side and Oppenheimer was on the right side. Yeah, this is really interesting because isn't there, mm-hmm. there's other examples of Einstein trying, right, in quant- with quantum mechanics, Einstein pr- trying to prove something wrong that actually, well, yeah, actually turns out, well, no, not only is that not wrong, that is true, and that makes it even worse. <laughs> yeah, that's where we get Bell's theorem from eventually, right? This is right. the UPR right. experiment. Right. Exactly. Right. So it, all, it, it all led to very positive developments in the sense that people tried to test his claims and, and figured out that he was wrong. But, you know, we made progress as a result. And, uh, you know, so it's a learning experience. So to Einstein's credit, and then to begin to wrap up, I mean, I feel like at least with the expansion of the universe, um, he, he, right, this is, he famously said this, his greatest blunder was 
you know, and not believing that the universe could be expanding is the cosmological constant, right? And he said, this is my greatest blunder. So the evidence, uh, you know, he, he, he bowed to the evidence and said, yes, um, something there. What I see is, I, interestingly, I feel like one outcome you hope for the Galileo project or just your, um, you're hoping that's just, that would just be one piece because of all the things you do. You would like to liberate scientists in a way from science, from a bit of extreme conservatism. Yeah, it's, it, by the way, I should say, these are chains that are being put by the scientists on their hands. I mean, they say, we, we don't want to discuss this subject until we have extraordinary evidence. And my point mm -hmm. is that, uh, you know, if you don't check your mailbox, you, you obviously will not have mail. Uh, and it's a circular argument. And, you know, we invested hundreds of millions of dollars in the search for dark matter. We haven't found it, but we are searching in the dark. And why would that be regarded as more mainstream than the search for things like us? We know that we exist. We know that, uh, that you know, about half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. So searching for equipment that was sent into space is very natural. It should be something that we are doing as part of the mainstream. I just don't understand why the scientists uh, would be on the exact opposite side of this argument, which is, again, I, I think it's it's quite wrong. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I, I see it as an important um, debate because I think it would have huge implications for the future of humanity. And the biggest implication that I can see, the biggest benefit is if I look at human history, much of it was shaped by a group of humans, a group of people trying to feel superior relative to other people. The best example is the Nazi regime you know as a result of uh, the second world war 75 million people were killed now that was three percent of the world population in 1940. Uh, just think about it 20 times more than the number of deaths uh, triggered by the covid 19 virus so far was caused by a group of people that decided they are superior relative to other people 20 times more than covid 19 and we keep you know talking about covid 19 all the time so now I say, okay, if we find evidence for a smarter kid on the block, you know, on the cosmic block, another civilization that was far more advanced than we are, then all of our genetic differences become meaningless. Then the Nazi doctrine makes no sense whatsoever, you know, because there is someone much farther along than we are. And, and, uh, and at that point, we should uh, be inspired to, con to treat each other with respect as equal members of the human species. So that is one example of how it could have a profound impact. Now, if the dark matter is weakly interacting massive particles, that wouldn't have a profound impact on society. And yet this is funded at hundreds of millions of dollars, whereas now the only funding for the search for equipment is the Galileo project. So. I mean, before that, it was practically zero. Yeah, yeah. Right. So what's the great, the, the best outcome is it, that happens if we go forward, uh, both in terms of, obviously, finding alien technology, that's a given. That would yeah. just be crazy, best, right? Or best, new physics would be crazy. The yeah. best outcome is that uh, this thing, uh, uh, you know, we put our hands on it, then we realize how we can, that it represents a technology that we would have developed in, in a million years from now but it's available to us right now. And then uh, many more uh, multi-billionaires show up on my porch because <laughs> now That's they, always want, a good yeah. they want to invest in that technology. They realize how much money it carries. And I should say to all of these multi-billionaires, you should 
visit my porch earlier before we find this technology because then you will get you will, you will get uh, your hands on it earlier yeah alien futures are going up get in get in now um, and what about the culture of science like do you think um, it, it's it's an emotional it, it seems like you know the, the, the deep-seated issue with it I think as you see it is it's an emotional issue can that be changed uh, well frankly you know I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter I have I have no footprint on social social media and Albert Einstein is a good example because he came up with a general theory of relativity where only a few people around the world understood it and a century later it's being used in GPS uh, systems for navigation okay and everyone is using it uh, the same is true about the mRNA vaccine. You know, people expose their arms and uh, a substantial fraction of the population uh, uh, was vaccinated and uh, without really understanding the evidence or agreeing with the evidence that led to the development of this mRNA vaccine. So I don't need people to agree with me as long as what I'm finding is a good description of reality. When I have reality on my side, I don't need people to agree with me. Okay, it's just the situation that Galileo was in. Uh, people can ridicule me, put me in house arrest, cancel me on social media. I care less because I know that reality is described by my data. And that one day will shape our future, no matter what people are doing to me right now. So the point is, what, we, what I really want, what I'm motivated by is getting the data such that I will know what reality is. And when I know what reality is, I care less about what people tweet about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems like, like citizen science can involve people if you're interested in things, funding, even at whatever level. Oh, yeah, ways if you if you're a citizen billionaire anyway. Right? Yeah. yeah, we have. Right. We, well, no, but even, even yeah. we have a link uh, on our Galileo Project website at Harvard uh, that allows for uh, even small donations, if anyone is interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like just, you know, um, Funding from outside the, you know, it, it, obviously sort of what you're saying ultimately is it comes down to the funding channels are a bit clogged or, you know, there's a lot going on. And if you believe in some- Oh, these, these, are, the funding, these are the funding channels that are controlled by committees populated by mainstream scientists who want to stay in their comfort zone. And they don't want to explore new territories. And I say that's bad for science because at the same time, you have a lot of speculation done in the mainstream of theoretical physics far more speculative than what we are discussing, you know, mm -hmm. the, the string theory uh, landscape, uh, the multiverse, extra dimensions, and that's being celebrated as part of the mainstream. Whereas when I'm talking about collecting evidence, trying to find out if we are the smartest kid on the block, which to me sounds like non-speculative at all and very down to, down to earth or space, as you want to call it, uh, uh, this is being ridiculed. And I find that really surprising. And I would say, it would change because I've seen that many times over in many other frontiers that I worked on and pioneered before other people joined. And uh, frankly, I don't give a damn whether people approve it or not, as long as it describes reality. Yeah. Would you, would you ultimately, could we describe the Galileo project and whatever it evolves into as, as basically a, a just a huge, uh, and I won't say huge, an expansion of what, like SETI pursues radio technology and some optical. Um, would you see it as a larger expansion of that? So in the past 70 years, we, SETI dedicated most of the efforts, almost exclusively all the efforts to detecting electromagnetic signals, uh, radio signals in mm -hmm. particular, 
Um, and that is equivalent to trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be active at the time that you're having the conversation. Uh, but it's most likely that, you know, uh, there were civilizations more advanced than we are around stars that predated us, uh, that uh, uh, formed a billion years before the sun, and therefore they had their act and they're not around anymore. These civilizations are dead, but they could have sent equipment into space and we can find it. We can do archaeology, just like we find evidence for cultures here on Earth. Uh, we can have archaeology in space where we look for uh, relics they left behind. And I think that's a completely different approach that was not practiced in SETI. And uh, surprisingly, uh, the SETI community is not uh, rallying behind my Galileo project. Uh, and, and you, you, well, that's another sociological uh, phenomenon that uh, you have this community of people trying to argue for more uh, scientific research on, on, on the topic of uh, finding, uh, you know, the technological civilization, yet they're not, they're doing it their way for 70 years and they're not, they're not supporting or, or, or uh, promoting the, the approach that the Galileo project does. And I find it really surprising. Now, I'm a relative newcomer to this business because I was intrigued by Oumuamua in 2017 and since then started working on it extensively and actually wrote a textbook also, Life in the Cosmos, that came out mm -hmm. a, a few months ago. It's uh, more than a thousand pages long. And uh, you know, and so altogether, you know, I, I really hope that the uh, culture would change within academia. I know that the public is very excited about it because I get thousands of emails all the time, uh, you know, after uh, within a few days after the Galileo project was announced, I got thousands of emails. And um, so I know the public has its heart in the right place. And really what I, I really wish is that the young generation will be free to speak it, about it and discuss it and it will become a part of the mainstream. And, and I should say that uh, the, the funds that I got through the Galileo project, the fact that it, uh, so many people volunteered their expertise and, and, and money uh, to support the project, to me, proves the point that uh, uh, this subject can bring new money to science and bring new people to science. And um, I just hope that my colleagues will catch up with that. That would be nice. Yeah. I don't know if you want more emails, but so how, how can people find out more about the Galileo project? So they, there is a website uh, at Harvard University. If you just Google uh, Galileo project, Harvard University, Avi Loeb, you will get to it. And uh, you can see updates over there and they see who is involved and what the scope of the project is. But um, on a more regular basis, I write commentaries. Actually, I had uh, three of them over the past week. And uh, they uh, discuss aspects of the Galileo project. So I highly recommend that. You can find them on my website um, at Harvard and uh, under opinion essays. It's one of the items on the website. And that's my professional website that has my uh, image on the top right. Fantastic, fantastic. Right. And you're not on Twitter and you're not on any the social media. Yeah, it's my wife uh, that told me that uh, when we got married, that uh, she will marry me only if I have no account on social media. And, and that was in the early days and I agreed to it. And now I can see the wisdom. And uh, mm -hmm. she basically saved me on that. And she saves me time and also, you know, a group thing, uh, her thing. Um, uh, and uh, the other thing, I mean, you can find me, of course, uh, through my commentaries, but uh, every morning at 5 a.m., I uh, jog in the company of birds, uh, bunnies, uh, wild turkeys, wolves, and uh, ducks. These are the, the types. And every day, I should tell you, the sunrise looks different. 
So uh, it, if, if you think about it as a metaphor, the next breakthrough in science will look different than the previous breakthroughs. And I re very much hope that the Galileo project will bring it. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you, Avi. And it really, it was such an honor to have you. And, and I, I just so appreciate your, um, your thoughts in, in all areas, especially just as someone who does science communication, I find it really fascinating too, because so much of what you do, uh, part of it at least involves the dialogue between science and the public. So it's really great. Gabby, uh, any, any, anything you would like to plug? N nothing beyond get your vaccine, please, for the love of God, get the jab. It works great. Well, for the love of biology, not the love of God. Yeah, or for the love of other people so you don't get them sick. Either one. Shout out to Richard Dawkins. Very good. Always helpful. Yeah. Matt, how about you? Anything would you would like to plug? Uh, let's see here. On October 5th, I'll be doing a virtual lecture for the World War I Museum, which is physically in uh, Kansas City, uh, but available to uh, anyone who wants to come join us. Fascinating. And what, what is the topic? Uh, this will be on Einstein's adventures during uh, World War I, which happens to be when he was uh, writing down the equations for general relativity as well. Indeed, indeed. As discussed in your book, Einstein's War, for available at all the finest booksellers, mm -hmm. virtual and not. And Avi, your book, uh, Extraterrestrial, very much out there and right. available. Uh, 20, um, 25 languages uh, translated. Wow. And um, wow. Uh, over the past um, seven months, I had 1,200 interviews about it, and about 35 uh, film producers and uh, documentary producers approached me about it. Uh, we shall see what comes out. I don't know how you not have enough time to do these things, Avi. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Around the clock, basically. And Well, the people of Earth thank you as well. I really uh, appreciate it. And there's one more language, and that's the language of whoever is out there. We don't know. <laughs> math, the language of math. Um, <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you, Avi. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Matt, as always. Thank you, listeners. Uh, you guys have been sending in some fantastic ideas, by the way. You can always email us at uh, feedback at whattheif.com or contact us with any of your questions, any comments, thoughts. Uh, I'm sure, you know, Avi's ideas today have made you think a lot. Um, our website, whattheif.com, is where you can find us. And if you have not subscribed using whatever podcast app you're listening to us, right now on uh find those flashing lights find the find that mysterious button that just says subscribe and it will show up in your uh your solar system mailbox every week um and we thank you for listening and lastly if you have not given us any reviews uh the great intergalactic tote board um is always watching so your podcast app also allows you to leave a review of our show give us some stars that would be fantastic Avi, we have a ritual. Uh, uh, Gabby, could you explain our closing ritual? And Avi, if you would consider joining us. And those who know what it is, consider get ready, go start warming up your... It's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not worried because we're not sitting in the same room. So I, 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 I... That's right. That's right. It's perfectly COVID safe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of every episode, as we, you know, consider what might be lurking or gifted in our intergalactic mailbox and all the things that still potentially await us out in the universe of ifs and space, uh, we cannot help but shout the name of the show in unison. And Matt, would you begin? Sure. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Avi Loeb. Thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, aliens and humans alike. We'll see you next week. Bye.